If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter 7, we'll be uh, reading verses 25 through 31 this morning. Let's, uh, let's bow for prayer. Father, once again, we are grateful, Lord, for the privilege to worship you this morning. And Father, we will be honest to, and let you know that we, we do want to be strengthened and encouraged this morning as we worship you. Father, we desire to worship you in spirit and in truth to have and to give you our undivided attention, to give you the reverence and the respect that you so rightly deserve. But Father, we also are <clears throat> very much aware that we are needy people. And we are in need, Father, of being strengthened so that we may continue to live life in a way that pleases and honors you. So we ask, Father, we be encouraged by your word as well as instructed by your word. That, Father, we may continue our journey in a way that honors you. We do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 25, Paul writes, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. So Paul here is completing his discussion on how the Christian faith should impact our relationships, our interpersonal relationships, both social and, and then also the very personal ones. He has really a, a theological conclusion that again is kind of rooted in the idea of the return of Christ. And so he wants to help them shape a proper outlook or attitude uh, when it comes to looking at life and evaluating life. Here, when he begins by talking about the betrothed, uh, the word there in the Greek language is parthenos, which means a mature young woman. Uh, according to the context of these verses, it, the stress may be on either the sex, age, or the status. It is often translated virgin. It is a term that was usually used for women who were also the only ones expected to avoid premarital sex in the Greco-Roman culture. Paul seems to apply the term, though, to both men and women. So virgins were, as the way that it's described in various commentaries and Bible dictionaries, virgins were sexually inexperienced people who had never married. So Jesus had never specifically addressed the propriety of marriage, per se, but Paul, again, is giving his judgment on the issue which they could take as being trustworthy counsel. So again, he says this in verse 26 and 27, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So when he says the present crisis, 
that may have referred to persecution that was being suffered by the Corinthians. Uh, many believe that really what Paul is talking about is he's anticipating um, uh, persecution that's going to come their way. So you, some think that you should translate this passage as in view of the impending crisis. That's really what he's looking at. In view of his silence in a letter about any present suffering, uh, that is why many people believe that he's talking about something that's coming down the road. But the bottom line is this, is that when persecution was going to come, whether it was there now or going to come in the future, and Paul was convinced it was going to come, the onslaught of persecution is more easily or more ably handled by a single person than by married persons. That's really what he's getting at. Now, again, he wants to emphasize that he's not giving a command. He's just kind of bringing out a principle and giving some advice. So in 28, he does again reemphasize this. He says, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. So if a person is single, even though Paul has said not to seek to be married, he's not making that a command. And so he's saying, so if you do that, if you go ahead and get married, it's okay. There's no sin. Then he addresses specifically those who are engaged. And says basically that if you go ahead and get married, you've not sinned either. So he really wants to make sure they understand where he's coming from in all of this. But then he says this, Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. So let me tell you what that doesn't mean. Because a lot of times this is used in a wrong way. Individual gets married, they begin to complain they're having trouble. And they say, well, you know what the Bible says? You get married, you're going to have a lot of trouble in the flesh. It's not what that's talking about, okay? Uh, Now, I'm not saying there's not some trouble in marriage. There's difficulty, we know. Uh, But the bottom line, that's not what he's talking about. Because he tells us next what what he means by this. Remember, the context of this is he's talking about what's going on in the world and what he believes is coming. And so he's talking about them and their ability to handle persecution or to handle times of affliction or stress. And so he's saying, well, you know, don't get caught up in this world here and now. You need to be living with a different mindset. So a dangerous time was upon them. A dangerous time was probably coming. And it was going to affect all of their normal relations. So let's move on. Because he then explains what he means by that. When he says, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. What does he mean by that? Verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. So what emerges from this passage, what he's getting at is this. That a worldview, he wants them to develop a worldview. uh, And he wants to teach a worldview that's placed against that of the prevailing attitudes. Now, the prevailing attitude of the day or of the Corinthian culture was basically this. Number one, that marriage was everything. The pursuit of happiness as being the sole pursuit of your life is condemned in the scripture. It's not wrong to pursue happiness per se, but that's the goal of your life. It's the wrong goal, and you're never going to find what it is you're looking for. But it was an obsession with the Corinthians. It was all about the here and now getting all that you can from this life now because they didn't believe that there was a life to come. They didn't believe that there was going to be anything beyond the grave. So this was it. And if this is it, 
then man, we need to pursue everything. And for them, at least for the Corinthians, marriage was way up there on, 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 the, uh, on their list of things that are going to bring you happiness and joy because of everything it represented. True love and children and, and just all the kinds of things that come along with that. They were following the teachings of Plato and other philosophers who believed that nature offered them only this life to enjoy. And so that all that could be secured of human experience and accomplishments, again, would happen only in this life. So such joys and satisfaction were not available to the unborn. They weren't available to the dead, only to those who are living here and now. Well, but the result was a worldview that was a lot like the one that we have in our society today. People living for the moment. The moment is the most important thing. What Paul shows is that the Christian lives his or her life in light of eternity. This earth is not all there is. We understand that from the scripture. Just so you understand, I'm not, I'm not against you having a bucket list, but just remember that for some people, the bucket list is actually coming from this worldview that this life is all there is, and you need to have as many experiences as possible. I'm not against you and I having experiences, but that's what this is all about. Is this, you know, People say, well, it's all about the experience. What's not about all the experience? Can you imagine talking to someone who just got married? Say, I'm so glad I'm married. Really? Had to experience it. Really? Is that what you think this is all about? Because that's just not, you're not cutting it. And so we have to recognize the way that the world kind of formulates their ideas and their passions. And so it's all about living in the moment and getting as much as you can now because there is no hope for the future. There's no thought of the future. They're not thinking about the future. They think there's no future to think about. Because this is it. This is all there is. The Christian is to be obviously completely different from that. Because we possess and know the truth. And we know that this is temporary. This is important, absolutely. But this is not all there is. There is so much more than this. There is a blessed hope toward which the believer orients all of their life. So again, that is the eschatological hope of the believer. uh, The future that we have with Christ. So... Because we have that, everything else in life is kind of, in a sense, it's, it's relative. It's relative to that. That's how we understand it. We, we understand it in relation to the hope that we have in Christ. Turn, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let me read verses 13 through 18 for you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. This is what Paul writes. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others as others do who have no hope. So Paul begins by saying that some of these believers were uninformed. They didn't know or they didn't have all the truth they needed to have. So he writes to them and he wants to help them to understand what happens to Christians who are dead. All right, that's because whenever you have the word sleep used as a euphemism for death, it's only used for believers. as a term never used for non-believers when they're dead, only for believers. So these believers were grieving very hard for their brethren who had died. And they believed that they kind of missed out. Whether they had missed out on the coming of Christ, they had missed out on heaven, they missed out on something, and so they were grieving hard for them. And Paul says, look, you're uninformed, and I want you to understand some things. Because we have a very sure hope that's in Christ. And so he says in verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So he tells them right there, they haven't missed on anything. They have not missed out on what you are hoping for yourselves. 
We're all going to participate in this together. Verse 15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So in light of those who have passed on, he says, you need, don't be in despair. I want you to be encouraged because we are going to be with the Lord forever. In fact, we're going to be with the Lord together forever. What a great thing. We can, we can take comfort in that. I think I, I mentioned it uh, um, last week. I'm not sure, but when we went up to go see my, my oldest granddaughter, became a believer. Uh, she's soon to be 19. Obviously, we've, we've been praying for that for a long time. And uh, after her baptism, we I was talking to her for a few moments, and I gave her a hug. And I said one, one of the greatest things that I was thinking about this when she was being baptized is we're going to be in heaven together. That's great. That's fantastic to think about. That... You know, it would be very unusual if she was to precede me in death, but we know things can happen. But if I precede her in death, which I'm assuming is going to be the natural way things are going to be, I'm going to be up there waiting for her and others in my family to be there together with us and the Lord. It's, it's, it's a fantastic thing to look forward to. And so when, you know, my parents are getting up in age, but, you know, I'm not looking forward to the day they die. But when they die, there's going to be grief, but I know where they're going to be. And I know we're going to be together with the Lord, together, conscious of who each other is. We're, we're going to know these things. The relationship that we have will be a little different, even though I do believe that I will know that he was my father on earth. We will be as close as brothers can be, and we have no idea how close brothers can be because of sin. But, but the relationship that we're going to have together is, is going to go is going to be beyond any intimacy that we, in, that we know about now. And we're going to be together. And, and that enables us to deal with some of the great stresses and tragedies of life. And so this is important. That's what Paul is telling them. And so when we go back to Corinthians then, Paul wants them to carry this mindset when they look at everything that's going on around them and in anticipation to the coming time of trouble that's certainly headed their way. One commentator says this, he says, what Paul is saying in Corinthians is that even one of the most important creation ordinances, just in case you don't know this, uh, when you read some books, some academics or, or commentary that talk about marriage, uh, the belief is, our understanding as Christians is that marriage was instituted at creation. So it's considered a creation ordinance is what we would call it. So even one of the most important creation ordinances, and in many ways a, a major relationship of life, cannot be judged to be everything in light of the eschatological factor. In other words, it's important and it's great, but it can never be the ultimate. Because in relation to the Lord and our relationship with the Lord and the coming of the Lord, then we see its proper place. So again, this is a very problematic way of thinking and looking at life that Paul is addressing and the same view that is prevalent today. In fact, those who preach... And those who listen and those who follow the prosperity gospel have fallen prey to the same way uh, or the same kind of Greek pagan way of thinking. They have collapsed the future and the future hope 
which is unique to the Christian perspective, into the present. If you listen to the prosperity preachers, that's what they've done. They've taken away the future and they've collapsed everything into only the present. And it's all about the here and now. Money and health, here and now. That's what it is. And of course, most of them, actually, they've got it figured out. For them to have as much wealth as they can in the here and now, they have to tell you to give them money. And hopefully you don't do this, but many do send them money. And then after all these people send them money, they go, see, it works. We believe in God to bless us and look at all the money we have. And so they go buy their $15 million jet, which I guess would be a used one. Uh, but they buy their $15 million jet and they say, you can have the same thing. And if you're listening very carefully and watching very carefully, you will figure out what the trick is to that. You can have all that. You just have to have a charismatic personality and convince everyone else to give you their money. And you can do the same thing. That's what's going on there. But nonetheless, that's what they've done. And many, many, many thousands of people listen to that garbage. And, and they fall in line with that. And not only is it very prevalent in our society today, we are exporting it to other countries. And we ought to be ashamed of that. When we Christians adopt this Greek pagan worldview, we distort the Christian perspective or perception of the seasons of life. So back to Paul, a person who was married has a problem with divided allegiance. That's kind of what he's getting at, you know, because you're concerned about your family and also the things of the Lord when these bad times come. That's not sinful, but there's that tension there that does create stress and, and it's, there's a difficulty in dealing with life that way. Back in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 32, what does Paul say? I want you to be free from anxieties. Okay, so when he says that, he's not saying that if you get married, you're going to be worried all the time. That's not what he's getting at. He's just saying that in general, he wants to be free from these worrisome situations that you might, that you might be involved in when persecution comes. So I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. That's what he should be anxious about. So this is not sinful worrying that he's talking about. The idea is this individual is caught up and in, in, he's preoccupied with thinking about how he can serve the Lord because that's, that's the, the primary purpose of his life. He is unhindered uh, in living his life. He doesn't have to you know, take time to provide for his family because he's single. He only has to care for himself. And so he can be more preoccupied with how he can serve the Lord. And that's, that's the way that he should be living. But the married man is anxious about worldly things and how to please his wife. So again, that's not sinful. He's just detailing for us, the, this, again, this divided allegiance. So it's not a divided allegiance where you love God or you love your family. You love both. But you only have so much time. You only have so many resources. And so now my resources and my time, my thinking is what? It's, it's divided. It's just, that's just a reality. That's what he's pointing out. to. That's why he's saying if you're unmarried, then eh, maybe it's good if you stay unmarried. Because you can live in this way. But again, don't somehow think or allow yourself to think that that is more spiritual. Because he never says that. He's just dealing with reality. So we all make sure we don't go there. Uh, because that would be a wrong way to apply scripture. Also, again, when he says that a married man is anxious about worldly things and how to please his wife, that's not, that's not stating there because it's impossible to please your, life, your wife. He's just saying that's what you should be doing. You should be concerned about that. It doesn't mean that's going to be the priority of your life, but that should be absolutely a consideration in your life is how to please your wife. And that doesn't mean that you get her whatever she wants, 
Uh, again, the assumption here is that we have a mature Christian relationship. But this, this man that he's talking about needs to have this, I guess you would say, on his list of priorities. She's not down at the bottom. She is up there at the top. That marriage is important to God. And that's what he is emphasizing here. Verse 34, and his interests then are divided. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things and how to please her husband. So there when it says the, the wife is worried as to how to please her husband, that does mean whatever your husband wants, you should give him. All right, so going on. <laughs> uh, maybe not really, but anyway. Uh, I'll just sing if you're paying attention. Uh, so again, it's not that Paul views the married life as less spiritual than the celibate life, but the celibate life is less distracted by worldly cares. So, verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So again, he's emphasizing why he's saying all these things. He does, he's not trying to put another law on them. That's not what he's doing. He just wants them to be informed. And he wants as many people as possible to be able to give the Lord their undivided attention. That's all that he's getting at. So again, looking at the text, beginning in verse 29, he says this. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods. Again, he's not saying here that if you're married, live as if you're unmarried and do whatever you want. Again, he's just talking about this idea that, that this is not to be the ultimate in your life. That's really all he's getting at. It's kind of worded strange in English because it can look like that's what he's saying, but that's not what he's getting at when you look at the entire chapter as a whole. And again, verse 31, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. So next, in verses 36 through 38, we have a passage that is strangely worded in the English. It's strangely worded and therefore difficult to understand. Verse 36, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So this whole strange passage about Behaving properly toward your betrothed. What is he talking about? What's going on here? Some think, when they read this passage, that Paul is giving advice to a man who's engaged to be married. I think when you read through the whole thing, I don't think that's what he's doing, but that's what it can look like, especially, again, in English. Others, and I believe the correct view, is that this is advice who's giving, uh, this is Paul giving advice to a father whose daughter is engaged to be married. Now, what we have to remember, we kind of have to go back in this time to understand the cultural context of, of what's going on here. So when we do that, remember this, that the cultural context will never change the meaning of the text, but it will enhance the meaning. It'll help, us, it'll help bring understanding uh, to what's going on. So we want to make sure, because some people will try to use uh, cultural context or, or various things to kind of change what's actually being said in, in, in the scripture. We want to be careful that, that we're not going to do that. 
So what we need to keep in mind is the control that a father had over the marriage of his daughter in ancient times. He had absolute control. If he said that she wasn't going to marry, it didn't matter who came along. She didn't have a choice. That was it. If he said she was going to marry so-and-so, that was it. He had absolute control. He had absolute say. It was never viewed as being right or wrong or mean or nice. That's just how it was. He was the authority, period. And so Paul then is addressing uh, this man because he may be in turmoil as to what to do. He has a daughter who's engaged. Now Paul is saying that if you're, if you're not married, don't get married. Uh, if you're married, stay married. Don't seek to be free. I mean, what, what am I supposed to do now? I, I'm, I have say over my daughter. She's already engaged. Again, if anyone thinks that he's behaving, uh, not behaving properly toward his betrothed, the New American Standard says, but if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, that that's still is kind of a weird way to say it, I think. Um, we could say it this way, the father who thinks he's being unreasonable, that's, that's, what he, that's what we're getting at, the father who thinks he's being unreasonable uh, towards his daughter, his daughter is one who's of full age, uh, the New American Standard says that she's past her youth, the New King James says she's past the flower of her youth, uh, the Christian Standard Version says past marriageable age, that probably means she's 18 or 19, <laughs> just so you know, that they were usually married off when they were 16 or 17, uh, if they, if they hit 20, uh, then you would use a different word for them because they're now considered an old maid. Uh, because that was, just, that was a great concern uh, back then. This is how they thought. Um, so again, when he says, if anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. So basically what he's saying is this. If there be some reason why marriage is necessary, and it could be even the daughter's happiness... It doesn't have to be some huge, earth-shattering, cultural, mind-bending reason why she wants to get married that the father has to give in. If it's just going to make his daughter happy, then he, he can give his permission for her to be married. Paul is saying there's no sin. Remember, the, the thrust through all of this is Paul's concern is their ability to handle coming persecution, that the way they're viewing life now, marriage is not all there is, so if you feel you can remain single, then by, by, by golly, by all means, remain single. In fact, it's probably better that way because if you, if you remain single, if you can, then you can, you can give the Lord your undivided attention and service. But if you find that you're just not able to do that, don't worry. It's okay. You go ahead and get married. And dads, now you're all concerned. You want to do the right thing by your daughter, the right thing by your man, by, 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 by God. And, and now what's happened is your daughter's married. I mean, your daughter's engaged. And now you hear Paul saying this, and you're kind of facing this conundrum. He says, hey, just relax. Just take a big breath. She wants to get married. You're convinced it's the right thing. Let her get married. It's all right. That's what he's getting at there. So in spite of Paul's advice, he does not intend to discourage marriage, especially in situations where it may provide for the necessary happiness of those who are involved. So again, verse 37, But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, who, so then he who marries his betrothed is well. He who refrains from marriage will do even better. So again, there's no sin in marriage. There's no superior virtue in celibacy in light of the present distress or in light of the coming crisis that Paul has alluded to. 
Paul still maintains that singleness for now is better. So we live in a culture that does glamorize sex. We live in a, in a culture that is still biased towards married couples or couples who are together for life. Uh, and that's even true in the church. And so as a result of that, sometimes uh, we, sometimes we are too, uh, oh, what's the word? Uh, maybe we're too enthusiastic about marriage. Meaning we kind of put it on single people that if they, if they don't get married, they're, really, they're missing out on everything in life. That's, we shouldn't be doing that. We shouldn't be doing that. To once want to get married, it's okay. That's a great thing. And to be happy for people to get married, absolutely. We should be rejoicing for them. But we should also be praying for and rejoicing with those who are single or maybe even remaining single. We, we, don't, we, we, may, we want to make sure we're not making them feel like they're outsiders. Like they don't belong. And we can do that unintentionally. We might mean well. And we sometimes joke about it. But eh, it's not always a joke. Because some may be single and they really do want to get married. And they're having a lot of pain. And there's others who may be absolutely happy being married. uh, Or being, being single. But they're feeling pressure. You know, that unspoken pressure from friends. That if they don't get married, somehow something's wrong with them. Or they're going to disappoint people. And we want to make sure we're not putting that on people. There's, there can be all things. If you really want to know why they're not married, just talk to them. Become their friend and talk to them. Pray for them and pray with them. So I think what Paul is doing is he's offering singles some encouraging words. One of those is that, you know, there's, the times of trouble are always coming. We know that from reading the scripture. And if you are single, remain single, you might be spared a lot of trouble when that time comes. You'll have less anxieties and concerns if you remain single. You'll have extra time if you remain single. You'll be able to serve God without distraction if you remain single. And those are to be celebrated. So we don't want to make them feel ostracized. We don't want to hold them up as somehow being that they're more godly or more spiritual than anyone else because they remain single. That's not a good thing either. God is not impressed by that. We want to go back to what Paul is saying, how we should be viewing life. And the way that we should be viewing life, the way that we should be living life, and and the ideas that we pass on to our children and our friends is that we all are living life in light of the coming of the Lord and being with the Lord forever. And that that we want to make sure that we are, as we mentioned last week, kind of blooming where we're planted, that whatever state we are in that was designed by God, and that we need to, to live for him in whatever state we are in. That state may change in the future, but whatever state we are in now, we need to be serving God and doing everything we can in light of how does God want me to serve him now? At this job, how am I to serve God? In my relationships, how am I to serve God? And that's how we ought to be thinking. So Paul really, as he goes through all these details in these relationships, is trying to help shape the way that they view the world and the way they view their lives. Because he knows they'll find greater satisfaction, greater meaning, and greater happiness in life if they're pursuing the things of God and living according to his word and what he says. And so again, he's not trying to, to burden them with unnecessary rules and laws and, and regulations. He wants them to think in light of the principles and in light of the truth of the word of God. There's a lot of freedom in that. And that whichever way a person goes... They, you know, they don't need to be encumbered by someone's wrong opinion that 
that you're either entering into sin or if you remain as you are, somehow it's sin or somehow it's less than it should be. We need to celebrate where we all are in life and truly love each other for who we are and, and experience life to the fullest here and now as Christians. So when the world views us and sees the diversity of the stations of life as well as our ethnicities and economic vari- variables and all the rest, what they see is a unique people that are united in Christ, that share a deep and lasting joy, not because of what we have in common in the world, because of what we have in common in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your grace and your love and your kindness. And Father, we do want to lift before you this morning those who may be single and are maybe in, maybe in some turmoil that is about their life and where they should be and where they ought to be and how they can find the greatest joy and happiness. Father, we pray that they would be encouraged this morning, that they can experience great joy and happiness now. And if, by chance, they should get married, they will enjoy and have great life experiences there as well. It's not that one is necessarily better than the other, it's just different. And so, Father, we pray that you would help all of us to approach life according to the paradigm that Paul has laid out for us. That Paul, that we, will be a, that, that we, Father, will be of a valuable use to you in your plan and in the kingdom that you're building. We thank you, Father, for the joy that we possess now. May we share in that joy together. May we continue to encourage each other to be joyful and to be thankful and to serve you as best as we can whether it's with an undivided attention and loyalty because we are single, or if it's a little less than that because we're married, we pray that we'll give it all that we have, knowing, Lord, that you will reward those who seek to serve you and live in obedience. And, Father, for those here this morning who may not know Christ, what we do know is that no matter how many things they experience in life that they may believe will bring them the ultimate happiness, even though it might make them happy, it'll be only for a moment, and it'll never be ultimate whether it's marriage or true love or children or the great career, all those things, Father, pale in comparison to the relationship that we have with you. And, Father, it's because the relationship we have with you that all the rest then will have the luster that they ought to have. And so, Father, we pray for their heart and ask, Lord, that you remove the blinders from their eyes and help them to see the glory that is Christ and the great need they they have for him. So, Father, we who are believers, we thank you for our salvation. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.